Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do because we're going to be in it uh, quite a bit today, turn to Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel. It's kind of near the middle, maybe just right of center uh, after the book of Ezekiel. But we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 2. And so Daniel chapter 2 is what we're going to be looking at. We're going to see the God who reveals mysteries. And so here at the outset, um, hopefully you've had enough time to turn there. I'm going to read the chapter. Um, And so I'm going to ask you to focus because there's 49 verses. And so we're going to read it. It's going to be on the screen so you can follow along on the screen or uh, in the Bible in front of you. But but follow along. I'm going to read Daniel chapter 2. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about it. Okay, so, so follow along as we read Daniel chapter 2, and we'll, we'll see the God who reveals mysteries. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell him his dreams. So they came in and they stood before the king. And then the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. Then the king answered and he said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, You shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they answered a second time, and they said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered, and he said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and they said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he, that is Daniel, declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from, God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and you have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and he said to him thus, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in the bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Verse 31, and you saw, O king, and behold, a great image or statue this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of heavens, making you to rule over them. You, O king, are the head of gold. And another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the day and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. 
Verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to Daniel. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he then appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Daniel chapter two, let me pray and then we'll, we'll work through this. Now, Father, would you shape our hearts, our minds, and our lives in accordance with the truth of this chapter? By your grace and for your glory, in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, there's, there's four sections, and we're going to work through this. I know it's a lot, but, but I've narrowed it down, and, and we're going to get through this um, in time. Okay, so Daniel chapter 2. So here's the four points that we're going to work through. We're going to see the crisis in Babylon, verses 1 through 16. We're going to see the, the issue at hand with, with Nebuchadnezzar, with his dreams. And second, we'll see Daniel's confidence as he's made aware of what's happening in, in Babylon with the king. We'll see his confidence in verses 17 through 30. Then thirdly, we'll get to the dream and its meaning. So the interpretation that Daniel gives, we'll see verses 31 through 45. And then finally, briefly, we'll close by seeing Nebuchadnezzar's response to what he has seen from Daniel. So first, their crisis in Babylon, verses 1 through 16. So as we, as we look at this first section, there is a problem in Babylon. More specifically, there's a problem with Nebuchadnezzar. So this king is a victim of nightmares. So, he, so here we have the most powerful man in the world who finds himself helpless in his sleep. He's troubled by his dreams. And, and so what the king does with all authority and all power, he calls all the people of the entire kingdom that would have any chance of helping him understand what his dream means. So he calls the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, which, which in this case is just a, a reference to a group of people who would have been like astronomers. So he calls all these people, he says, hey, everyone come and come quick. They, they, they are the ones that Nebuchadnezzar thinks can help. And so they all come in before the king and Nebuchadnezzar simply says, hey, I've had a bad dream, I'm troubled and I wanna know what my dream is. To which the Chaldeans, verse four says, oh king, j- just tell us the dream and then we'll tell you what it means. Just, just do that, we're here, tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. And so as we read that, we all, I, I think, intuitively detect this could be and probably is just an easy way out, isn't it? Okay, we're here. Tell us the dream. Oh, king, live forever. Tell us the dream, and we will interpret it favorably, favorably for you. We're not going to tell the, dream, the king anything bad, so just tell us the dream, and we'll, we'll put our spin on it, and then you will be appeased, and, and everything will be fine. But as Nebuchadnezzar hears this, he, he doesn't trust these men. He doesn't want their flattery. He wants to know this dream. He's troubled. He needs to know what this dream means, what it's about. So his plan is, you, you're not just going to interpret the dream for me. You're going to tell me the dream and then interpret it for me. Some people would say Nebuchadnezzar forgot his dream, which of course, if you're like me, that that wouldn't be unlikely. You wake up, you're like, I can't remember that dream, but but it was scary or it was good. Maybe that's the case. I don't think that is the case. I think Nebuchadnezzar remembered his dream. He just wants to make sure that these people are actually telling him what's true. So he says, okay, if you can tell me what the dream was, then I can trust your interpretation. So I think that's why he sets out this plan. Not only are you gonna interpret it, you're gonna tell me what the dream was. So, so if, they, if these men could tell him what the dream was, if they could reveal the mystery of the dream, then certainly they could be trusted to give the interpretation. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar says. And so they, they recognize, oh goodness, we're in trouble. And so, so not only, they say, okay, king, 
Like, we, we can't do this. We're, and so when he says, if you can't do this, you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna die. He says, wait a minute. We can't do this. And so they, they recognize they, they are facing their, their own death, impossible task. And so in verse 10, they say, well, wait a minute. No one can do this. No one can do what you're asking, king. They're, they're trying, they're trying to, to get him to budge. And they do so by saying, no king has ever asked anyone to do this before. Not even the greatest king in the history of the world has ever asked anyone to do this. The, the thing that the king asks, verse 11, is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except, hey, king, there, there is someone who could interpret this dream, dream but that's the gods. That, that, that's the divine realm, and, and actually, king, we can't do it. Only the gods could do what you're asking, and you should know, king, they don't dwell among like, people like us, among the flesh. So that's, that's, that's what they say. That's their final, that's their, that's their final plea. Nebuchadnezzar is asking them to do something, not only that, he, that they can't do, he's also asking them to do something that no king has ever asked anyone to do before. And so they willingly admit their inability. Remember that their job is to, is to have this divine, supernatural access to, to, the, to, to the sacred. And so they say, well, we can't do this, but, but it's not just us, king. No one could do this. In other words, king, we're not gods. We're not gonna be able to give you the divine revelation. We are not revealers of mystery, but, but they also tell Nebuchadnezzar by implication, you're not a God either if you don't know the mystery. You don't know the mystery. You're asking us to do it. So you're not a God either. Only gods could know this. And they're not like us people. They don't dwell among us. And so we have this, this fascinating crisis developing in Babylon. All the, the experts and the, the things supernatural or cosmic or dark, these, these dark magic experts, and not one of them can access the mysteries behind the king's dream. Even though their lives depended on it, their backs were up against the wall, they couldn't do it. And so they're forced to acknowledge, they're forced to admit that there were some mysteries that no human could know. And so that's what they say to, to Nebuchadnezzar, we can't do it. Verse 12, because of this, the king was very angry and furious. He can't believe he's been paying their salary all this time. They can't do this thing. And so his anger boils over and he gives the order, kill them all. Not just these, but, but go get all the wise men. They're all worthless. So go get them and I'm gonna kill them. And this is where we find out it includes Daniel and his friends who have completed their, their training that we saw last chapter. And now they, they are part of the wise men of Babylon. That's the group that, they, that they're part of. And so they, they are, they're brought near. And so this is the crisis. What started as a troubling dream quickly turned into a decree to kill hundreds of men in Babylon, all because they couldn't do what they claim only gods could do. And so before we move to the second section, verses 17 to 30, just as a point of application, I just want to highlight the irony of this crisis. I mean, we see what I've said, humanity 101, we see on display in Nebuchadnezzar what one author refers to as human insecurity. There's irony here because this crisis is being experienced by the most powerful person in the world at this time. The person who has no end to resources or authority, the person who from a human perspective has reached the height of human achievement and security. Nebuchadnezzar is as high as you could get on the human mountain. And this is the person whose heart is troubled and is scared of and can't control his own dreams. When he lays his head down at night, he's like a child lost in the dark. And he's afraid. He can't. He can't figure it out. And he's scared and afraid. And that's the point. Humanity is always, always going to lack the ability to control and rule and know all things. I mean, that, that's, that's humanity 101. 
This is what it means to be human. There has never been, nor will there ever be, any human king or president or dictator who doesn't suffer from insecurity or lack. We are not God and will never be. To be human is to be not God. And so when we as humans face the reality that we aren't God, we can either, like Nebuchadnezzar, be anxious and angry and troubled and and, and try and get control of it, or we can, like Daniel... And like so many other people of God throughout the ages, we can rest in God. We can say, I'm not God, and I don't know what this means, but I can trust God. The church father Augustine famously said in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Humanity 101 is that we're not God, but we are made to rest in God. And so what Augustine knew and what Daniel knew and what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know is that a restless heart is calmed not by knowing what God knows, but a restless heart is calmed by knowing that God knows and that God is in control. A restless heart is calmed not by knowing what God knows, but by knowing that God does know and is in control. And so in these first verses from Daniel 2, we see the God-centered view of the world that must sustain the people of God. God is the one who gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar and God is the one who must reveal the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. God is God and we are not. And so as we, as, we, as we begin looking at chapter two, we can rest assured that God is in control despite human appearances. Let's look second section, verses 14 through 30, Daniel's confidence. And so as this crisis comes about and, and Daniel is summoned, his confidence is, is on display. As things unfold, Daniel takes huge risks, trusting, confident in the God who does reveal mysteries. And so these verses in verses 14 through 30 make perfectly clear, not only that God is the one who is able to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and means, these verses also make clear that this trust in God, this confidence is the foundation for Daniel. So Daniel is bold here because he trusts God. Since Daniel knows that God's the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream in the first place, he knows that God is able to reveal what it means. So so when Daniel gets the word that he and his friends have been summoned to be killed, verse 14 says he responded with prudence and discretion, much like in in chapter one. And so so when he's he's discussing things with Arioch, who's the commander, the head of security, he says, well, why why is this such an urgent matter? Daniel wasn't there in the inner court, so he doesn't know why why this happened. So he says, well, what's the hurry? Why why are we all being summoned? Why are we all gonna die? And so when when he hears what had happened, his confidence is immediately on display. So in verse 16, he asks for an appointment with the king. Immediately, he knows what fate he's already facing. And he knows that if he's able to meet with Nebuchadnezzar, just, if I can just meet with the king, I know that God can reveal this mystery. I know that, that God can give Nebuchadnezzar what he wants. So, so he, he confidently asks for a meeting with the king. We should note he doesn't set up an appointment wondering if God might possibly be able to reveal the mystery that Nebuchadnezzar is wanting to know. He knows that God is able. And we see that because of what happens when he leaves that meeting. He gets the appointment with the king. He goes back to his friends in verse 17 and 18 and he he makes the matter known to them. And what does he tell them to do in verse 18? He says, seek mercy. Seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So he goes home confident, God can do this. So we better ask him, seek mercy that he might reveal what the king wants Daniel goes home and tells his friends, God can do this. God can make this known. So, so friends, ask God to be gracious to me and to be gracious to us. And verse 19, amazingly, 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. Ask God for mercy, seek mercy. Next verse, they got it. God revealed the mystery just like they asked. Can you believe it? God did what they asked him to do. Daniel's confidence was well-founded. And then in a song of of, of prayer or, or blessing, Daniel continues to just exude confidence. There in verses 20 and 21 and 22, He just blesses God. Blessed be the name of God forever who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings, who gives wisdom, who gives knowledge, who reveals deep and hidden things, who knows what's in the darkness. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. You did what we said and so I bless you for doing that is what Daniel says. There's no doubt where Daniel's confidence is. He doesn't say, I'm so glad that that I was able to do the math in my head and you gave me some little pieces and I put it all together. I'm so glad that you gave me a brain so I could figure it out. He says, no, you did this. It's you and you alone. Praise be to you. And so then Daniel, the the next morning, I'm I'm sure, as soon as he wakes up, he goes to Arioch and he says, don't kill the wise men. Stop the order. I can give the king what he wants. And so Arioch rushes Daniel. Okay, come on, Daniel. Goes in before the king and he says, hey, there's this exile from Judah and he says he can do what you're asking. And so the, the king asked Daniel, can you do this? I'm sure skeptical. None of, none of, none of the Babylonians, all the schooled men, and, and you exile from Judah, who, who you've just been here studying for three years, you really think that you can do this? Can you do this? And notice Daniel's confidence, verse 27. No wise men, no enchanters, no magicians, no astrologers can show to the king the mystery that you've asked. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And that's why I'm here, Daniel says. There's a God in heaven who wants you to know what that dream means. So that's why I'm here, says Daniel. Verse 28, you're dreaming the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. And notice, he doesn't go right into the vision. He says, to you, O king, as you lay in the bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. As for me, so in other words, God's telling you what's gonna happen in the future, Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling you what's coming. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than anyone else, but in order that this interpretation, interpretation may be made known to you. God wants you to know this. That's why I'm here, says Daniel. The God who reveals mysteries has revealed this mystery to you because he wants you to know what's gonna happen. And as we know, that this isn't a great message for Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel doesn't, doesn't water down the message, even though he's going to give him a, a bad message. He basically says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die one day, and this, this Babylonian empire that you are so proud of, it's going to be replaced by another weaker empire. He's going to say that, but he says that confidently because he knows this is what the Lord wants you to know. He's confident, and he gives Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the bad news. He knows God's plan for him and his role in this situation. He's not afraid. And so he, he makes known to him the dream and its interpretation, and we'll see that in just a minute, but let me make two quick points of application here from his confidence. The, these points are gonna come up again and again, but the first point, just from, from Daniel's confidence, is we see the significance of prayer. I, I think we see here prayer as an opportunity to seek mercy. I mean, do you know that God is merciful and he does what he's asked to do? That's evidence of God's mercy, I mean, when your back is up against the wall, when when you're at the end of your rope, when you're desperate for God to act, prayer is always an appropriate course of action. Do you hear that? Are are you at the end of your rope? Are you desperate for God to intervene in in the life of a a child or a grandchild? 
or a situation, are you desperate for God to act? Prayer is always an appropriate course of action, regardless of what you're going through. I, I think sometimes we're, we get down on people who only pray when things are hard. And, and we want to say, well, you only pray when things are bad. Well, well there, there's truth to that. I get that. But I don't ever want to discourage prayer. God is merciful and prayer is always an appropriate call, course of action. God is merciful and prayer is a very practical way to express our dependence on his mercy. And that's what Daniel does. He says, guys, come around. Let's seek mercy. And God responds. God comes through. He grants mercy and gives them what they're asking. So that's the first point. We see the significance of prayer. But second, we see the humility of God's people. In Daniel, we see a characteristic on display that's always found or ought always be found in God's servants. Humility is the mark of Daniel. He doesn't speak to the king in order to make himself great. It's not about him. He speaks to the king to make God known. It's not about Daniel, it's about Daniel's God. It's true of Daniel, we'll see that, this humility, but it's true of, think of Joseph earlier in the book of Genesis. He rises to power and he actually has a God-given ability to interpret dreams also, remember? And he's in prison. And he has this supernatural ability. And when he stands before Pharaoh, he makes very clear, this isn't me. This is God who's given me this. This is God and for his glory. He's the one who's responsible. Again, it's the humility that marks. It's the, the life of God's servant is not about the servant. It's about God and always will be. You are God alone. We just sang earlier. That's the cry of the Christian. Or think about John the Baptist. In John chapter three, he says, I must decrease and Christ must increase. That is our default. We must become less and he must become greater. This is the heartbeat of the Christian. In fact, this is, this is necessary you know, even to become a Christian. Right? We humble ourselves to come to Christ because by coming to Christ, we say, I can't do it on my own. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I can't make my life work on my own. I need Jesus to intervene. That, that, that's what it means to become a Christian. You, you cast yourself holy and fully on the mercy of God that's been shown in Jesus Christ. So the follower of Jesus from, from day one must be humble. You don't enter the kingdom apart from humbling yourself. And then as you live as a Christian, you don't, you don't grow past humility, you grow deeper in humility. Every day is a call to die to yourself, your preferences, your wants, your desires. You die to self and you live for Christ and you serve others. A proud Christian is an oxymoron and we see that in Daniel. Let's move on to the third point, the next section, verses 31 through 45, the dream and its meaning. And so there we're told what the dream was. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. And this image, mighty and of, ex of exceeding brightness, it stood before you and its appearance was frightening. I know why you're afraid because there's this huge statue in front of you. And the head of this image was of fine gold and its chest of, and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze and its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And so there's no real confusion surrounding the dream itself. Nebuchadnezzar sees a great image, this giant statue, and this statue that he sees consists of five sections. And what we notice as it's described is that each section was less valuable or less expensive than the section above it. So what it's made of is less valuable. So the head of gold, this is the most valuable. And then there's chest and arms of silver. And then there, the middle is bronze. And then the legs of iron. And then finally at the bottom, the least valuable section, because it's iron and clay mixed together, you have the feet. Now, I'm not a, a statue maker, but this would be abnormal because if this is a giant statue, the, the base is the strongest part or should be. And so you have this base made of clay and iron. You think, well, that's, that's weird. 
Nevertheless, here's this statue, and it actually appears that it doesn't matter what the base is made of because at the end of the day, this statue is going to be demolished. This entire statue is destroyed by a stone note that was cut out by no human hand. So this this stone comes into the dream or this, this vision and strikes the feet. And it's not just that the feet break apart, but the feet and the legs and the the thighs and the arms and the head, everything is just demolished. And so the stone strikes the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away. Not even a trace of this valuable large, scary statue. It is totally destroyed. But there's something that remains, right? The stone doesn't strike. And then it's not that the stone is destroyed. The stone itself, Daniel says, stayed there and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so that's the dream. So Daniel says, hey, that's the dream, king. That's what you wanted. I know that's what you saw. Statue, stone destroys the statue. Stone remains, grows, statue is gone. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar wanted interpreted. What does that mean? He's scared. And fortunately, we're not left to our own devices to make sense of the dream. Thankfully, Daniel continues, then verses 36 through 45, to give the meaning of the dream. And so the first thing he does, as, he, as he's now going to interpret the dream for the king, he, does, he prefaces this, this interpretation by saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you ought to know your place in this world. So look there at verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom to whom the God of heaven has given the power, to whom the God of heaven has given the might, and to whom the God of heaven has given the glory, and into whose hands the God of heaven has given the children and the beasts and the birds, the the God of heaven who's made you ruler over all of them. Do you notice how he's prefacing this? Oh, you great king, yeah, let me tell you about this thing, but let me first make sure you understand that the, the God of heaven has given you all of this that you have. Yeah, I'm going to tell you you're the, the head of gold, king, but, but just so you don't get a big head, you're still subject to the God of heaven because he's given you all that you have. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the most valuable part of the statue. You are the most powerful man in life. However, your position, king, Daniel wants him to know, is given to you by God. The God of heaven has given you power and authority. The God of heaven has given you people and animals to rule over. Daniel is making perfectly clear, standing in front of the most powerful man on the planet, that his authority is not from himself, but from the God of heaven. It's similar to, remember when Jesus is standing before Pilate and Pilate is trying to to get Jesus to to be released. And Pilate says to Jesus, the son of God, don't you know I have authority to release you, Jesus? Do you remember what Jesus says? You have no authority other than what my, my father has given you. You don't have authority, Pilate. You, can't, you don't have authority over me, and any authority you do have, it's from God on high, right? This is what's happening here with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel, after, after this preface, says to Nebuchadnezzar, you, king, you're the head of gold. And so, so we, we got that much clear. And okay, so we, we can identify the, the king with the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is the top. Babylon is the first. And what else is clear is that there will be successive kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar. Kings and kingdoms are going to follow. And, and it says, Daniel interprets and says, these are lesser kingdoms. They're inferior to you. But they're actually going to come and replace you. 
They're going to come and they're still going to have expansive rules. They're going to extend over the whole earth. So, so there's going to be successive kingdoms after Nebuchadnezzar and after Babylon. And so what we know is clear, okay, Nebuchadnezzar is the, the head of gold, and then there's going to be another kingdom of silver, going to be replaced by another kingdom of bronze, and then a fourth kingdom of iron, and then clay, an intermixed kingdom. And the fourth kingdom, in, in Daniel's explanation, is given the, the most description, because it's going to be a divided kingdom, he'll say, and during that kingdom, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And so we have the first kingdom clearly identified and we have the last kingdom clearly identified. This last kingdom is none none other than the kingdom of God. You see, it's God gonna set up an eternal kingdom. And that's his point. That's his explanation. That is a clear identity marker that Daniel gives. And so it's not too complicated, is it? Human kingdoms start with Babylon, they're gonna come. They keep coming until eventually there's gonna be a kingdom that comes that's never gonna go away. I mean, that's the simple explanation of the dream. The dream and its interpretation given to Daniel are actually quite simple at least if we focus our attention on the central message. Human kingdoms are gonna come and go, replacing the one before it, each one expansive in its rule until eventually there will come a kingdom, a supernatural kingdom of supernatural origin, and it will, this final kingdom, God's kingdom, will ultimately destroy all other kingdoms. That starts small, that will grow to fill the whole earth, and unlike earthly kingdoms, it will endure forever. That's the main idea. That's the big picture. Human kingdoms, no matter how expansive, no matter how large the dominion, no matter how powerful the army, every human kingdom, nation, dominion will fall and be replaced until eventually that cycle is going to stop and there's going to be one kingdom. And that will be the kingdom of God. And that's not confusing. That's the main point of this dream. But this chapter gets a whole lot more attention than that because discussion on identifying the specific kingdoms tends to take over any discussion of Daniel chapter two. And when you start trying to figure out, well, what kingdom is what, you can easily bury the main idea. So, so on, this, on this process of, of specifically identifying each kingdom in the dream, one commentator says, it doesn't take long before we find our heads spinning with the variety of interpretations offered, all of which go far beyond the interpretation and application that Daniel himself gives. He continues, it's important to note that the passage itself gives us virtually no data about the specifics of any of these kingdoms because it intends to give a philosophy of history rather than a precise analysis of history ahead of time. The focus of the dream itself and its interpretation are more concerned with what the future holds than when it will come to pass. Do you see if we say, well, what is this kingdom? What is this kingdom? We get lost and we miss the point to say, hey, what's gonna happen at the end of all this is the kingdom of God's gonna come and there's gonna be no more earthly kingdoms. That's the point. And that's easy to know and understand. And that would have been easy for, for Nebuchadnezzar to know. He wouldn't have been saying, well, what's the next kingdom? What's, he didn't care. All he knew was uh, my kingdom's gonna be gone and there's another and another and then eventually that cycle's gonna end. Now, when it comes to identifying the kingdoms, we're safe. We're on safe ground identifying the golden head is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, right? We're all safe there because Daniel says that. And we're on safe ground identifying the rock as the kingdom of God, which would eventually be established and ultimately be the only kingdom remaining. And so, so we're on safe ground there. So we have the, the golden head and the rock. Those are clearly identified. Now, other than those two, which are specifically identified by Daniel, there's only speculation, we just have to recognize that. It's only speculation identifying the others. Daniel doesn't identify the other kings or kingdoms, which should give us pause. Do these other parts represent different kings or kingdoms? Yes, that seems to be the pattern. Can we know for sure without a shadow of doubt which ones they represent? No, 
We can't. So, so we proceed lightly with that in mind, but most common suggestion or guesses, which is what they have to be, is that we know Goldhead is Babylon. Then people say, well, the silver section is, is the Medo Persian Empire, which would come after that. And then the bronze would be the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And then the iron and clay section would be the Roman Empire, during which the life and ministry of Jesus took place. And so people say, well, that, that's when the rock came during the time of those kings. So that's the most standard take that you'll read. Which, which I say, okay, maybe. Likely, sure. Again, I don't think it really matters. Now, now the, the other alternative that some people suggest, they'll, they'll divide the Medes and the Persians, and they'll say, well, those, those are the, the second and third, and that the Roman Empire isn't one of the four. So, so that's another interpretation. But again, and this is where you see my hand, I don't think it really matters. If we were supposed to know the specifics, we would have been told the specifics, but we're not. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't told the specifics, and we're not, which means that we don't have to rack our brains trying to determine which section of the statue represents which king or kingdom. The vision's main point is not the details of the course of the events in history, but the fact that history is under the control of God and that it has a purpose which will be achieved. The rock is coming, and it will be eternal. Now, we'll come back to that in a minute, but notice how Daniel ends his speech with Nebuchadnezzar then in verse 45. He says, O king, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So God gives this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, then he sends Daniel to interpret it in order to open the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar to his responsibility. Number one, hey, you are responsible of, God has given you authority but also, Nebuchadnezzar, he's shown you this to show you your smallness. You're going to be off the world stage soon, Nebuchadnezzar, and your kingdom's going to be gone. And so like Adam in the Garden of Eden, God makes very clear to this great king of Babylon that he's responsible for all the things that have been placed under his authority. Even though he's certainly no worshiper of the God of heaven, at least not yet, Nebuchadnezzar is still responsible to use his authority rightly and justly. And, and, and Daniel wants him to know that. It's been given to him. He's a steward. But Nebuchadnezzar is also being shown that there's going to be another king and another kingdom after him. No matter how big and how great and how mighty he thinks he is, how, how big and great and mighty he thinks he can be, he must know that he's just a blip on the radar, a passing king ruling a passing kingdom. And that's the point of the dream. That's what Nebuchadnezzar needs to recognize. That's what he should take away from this revealed mystery. And it kind of looks like it gets... Gets, gets the hang of it or understands that. Look, look quickly at these final verses. How does he respond? Verse 46 through 49. So, so the king is, is clearly affected by what he's told. He's fall, he falls down before Daniel and he pays homage to him. Then he says, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Truly your God is revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So he's in awe that, that Daniel could do what he asked. So he says, okay, you say it's God. Okay, great. I'm gonna pay homage to you. Yeah, your God is, is, is pretty good. So he recognizes the uniqueness of Daniel's God, but he still has a long way to come. We're going to see next week that the, the beginning of chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it because he builds a statue to himself and says, hey, you guys worship the statue of me. So he, he has a long way to come, but he, he appears to get it, at least the, the start of it. And then Daniel is promoted. He says, well, well I got to keep this guy around. He, he knows the God of heaven, so I better keep him around. And then Daniel, upon his suggestion that his three friends are also promoted. And so there's going to be more to come for them next, next week, Lord willing, as we'll see the three friends. But as we close, I just want to leave with two final points of application. And then I'll pray and we'll, we'll sing and be done. But the first application, I think this is the main point of chapter two. 
the, these two, two points of a, of a same application. The first is to notice the transient nature of worldly kingdoms. I think that's the message of, of Daniel 2. Human power is a fragile thing. I, I think that's what it screams. We're living still here in a world that's infatuated with power and authority. The air we breathe is fraught with, with desires and passions to be in power and to be in, a, in control and respected and in authority. And I'm afraid that we're seeing this more and more in our particularly polarized political landscape. We just want our guys to be in charge, right? We want the power. We want the person in the White House. We want the person in the state capitol. And regardless of what what side of the aisle you're on politically, you need to heed the warning from Daniel chapter two. Human power is transient. It's frail, it's fragile, it's actually weak and fleeting. Nations, presidents, dictators, political parties, world orders, all are transient. And this nation is not an exception. This nation that we are all citizens of has accomplished a lot of good throughout its history. God has certainly used America for his purposes. And I will just acknowledge and make very clear that our nation's history is filled with reasons for thankfulness. God has used things in this nation for good, to to bless, and to be a benefit. Our nation's history is filled with displays of heroism. Our nation's history is filled with occurrences worthy of our pride. We can say, I am proud to be an American. We We can actually love this country and being citizens here. We can thank God that we were born here and not somewhere else. I mean, I just thought about yesterday, the, the 20th year anniversary, all these remembrances. I mean, there, there's heroes on display. I, I read the, the, the transcript of, you should, you should look it up, Todd Beamer, I think it was Beamer, uh, Todd Beamer, but, but he's on, a, on Flight 93, United Flight 93, and he's talking to the, 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 dis, the 911 and, and just his interactions. He's a hero. And so you should say, wow, what a hero worthy of, of honor and respect, we see, see stories about the fire department and, and crossing the Brooklyn Bridge, knowing every, every single uh, volunteer fire department or, vi- or firefighter on that truck is going to be killed in moments, right? What, what an act of heroism in the first responders. I mean, more recent history, the, the fight against terrorism, right? Our nation has been used, and think further back, standing up against, against Hitler and, and the na- rise of the Nazis, or, or think even further back, the people, heroes like Harriet Tubman or Frederick Douglass or Ruby Bridges, who, who stood firm in the fight against slavery and segregation, or even further back, founding fathers who engaged convictionally in the revolution. This could go on and on. Our nation is filled with occurrences like that, that we should say, thank God that we are here. And I don't, I don't want to belittle that, and maybe there's more heroes to come. I mean, a lot has happened since the late 1700s, and we don't know how much longer this nation's gonna be here. Maybe there's more to come. However, what we do know is that the clock is ticking on the American experiment. It is. We do not know how much longer this nation will exist, but we do know that this nation is falling through the sands of time, and it is not eternal. It will not last it won't. I mean, just for, for perspective, we have existed for, for 246 years, give or take. 
The Roman Empire lasted for over 500 years. We're not even halfway to what they were. I mean, that was a massive empire. We're not even halfway there. And, and so think about the message of Daniel 2, the good news for the Jewish exiles in Daniel's time, and the, the good news for us here today is that God removes kings and God sets up kings and that the entire world and all of its nations and governing authorities is under his sovereign rule. All human and earthly powers are transient. Whether our present earthly context is an actively hostile dictatorship or whether our present context is a relatively benevolent democracy, one day the glory and power of this kingdom too will come to an end. And there may be others after it. This world and this world is and its constantly changing kingdoms are not what life is all about. And so that's the first point. Worldly power is transient. And so for, for followers of Christ, for Christians, when you become a Christian, it necessarily means that your allegiance has changed. Being a Christian means that you pray with conviction and a clear conscience, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so, so a, 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 a searching question that, that we need to ask ourselves is what kingdom are we living for? What, what kingdom are we devoting mental and emotional energy towards defending and fighting for? Which kingdom cause are you most passionate about? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's one kingdom that must take precedent. There's one and only one kingdom and one and only one king that deserves our unashamed allegiance. Which leads to the final point of application, which is the eternal nature of God's kingdom. I mean, this is the hope. And this is a hope that extends throughout the ages and will extend forever into the future. There is an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. This is our hope. This is our confidence. This is why we live boldly here and now in whatever place we find ourselves, whether in America or in Afghanistan. We have hope that there is more than here and now. This is our confidence. We, we can say with, with Martin Luther, like goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There is a kingdom that will never fall. There is a king and an authority that will never be conquered. And we who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are members of that kingdom. Thus, we have hope. Always. Whether here in America whether Nazi-occupied Germany, whether in the Taliban-ruled Afghanistan, no matter when and where, those who have come to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son have been made citizens of a kingdom that will never end. And that is our hope. And so let us be thankful, in the words of Hebrews, for receiving a kingdom that will never be shaken. Let's pray, and then we'll sing.